Hey, did you hear about the woman who'd been married to four, uh, who'd been married to four men? She'd been married to four men. Her first husband was a millionaire. Her second husband was a film producer. The third man in her life was a butler, and her fourth husband was a funeral director. A millionaire, a filmmaker, a butler, and a mortician. Of course, the woman explained her choice in men as follows. It's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. Well, believe it or not, that's a good lead-in into tonight's Bible study. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul deals with marriage and divorce and singleness. He addresses marriage in verses 1 through 9, divorce in verses 10 through 24, and singleness in verses 25 through 40. There's something for all of us in tonight's text. Well, he begins in verse 1. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, up to this point in Paul's letter, he's been addressing problems that he's heard have existed in the church at Corinth. The believers had had a divisive attitude. There were little cliques in the church. They had become prideful and carnal. In the name of tolerance, church members were overlooking blatant sin in their midst. Unable to settle their own disputes, they were even suing each other in secular court. And like their immoral surroundings, this wicked city of Corinth, they too had adopted a lax attitude towards sexual standards. You see, Paul had taken the church to task on all of these issues and more. Now, though, in chapter 7, Paul answers questions that have been posed by the Corinthians. Apparently, these last 10 chapters constitute Paul's response to a previous correspondence. And he begins with this topic of marriage. This is what he says. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Here in verse 1, the Greek word translated touch refers to an act of intimacy, to touch in a sexual way. Here's Paul's first point on marriage. It's good that you avoid it. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God said, It is not good that man should be alone. And his answer for our loneliness was marriage. Here, though, the Holy Spirit says through Paul, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Well, which is it? It reminds me of the old saying, marriage means showers for the bride and curtains for the groom. Hey, folks read this chapter and they've accused Paul of having a negative attitude toward marriage. I think that's an unfair conclusion. You need to understand that Paul's intent in this book is not to lay out a comprehensive teaching on marriage. Remember, he's answering questions posed by his readers. You see, if you want an unabridged version of Paul on marriage, you should also read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 33. There he exalts marriage by proclaiming it a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. You should read too, Hebrews 13, verse 4, where Paul assures us that sex in marriage is pure and holy. And also read 1 Timothy 4, verse 3. There he lists forbidding to marry as a mark of apostasy. You see, when you take the totality of Paul's teachings on marriage, there's no contradiction. 
generally speaking, Genesis 2 is right. It is not good that man should be alone. And yet, under certain circumstances, in specific cases, 1 Corinthians 7 is also right. It's not, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, Paul goes on. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. You remember back in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus spoke of certain people who had been given the gift of celibacy. He referred to them as eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. They had the gift of singleness. I believe there is such a gift. You know, for some people, sexual appetite isn't a problem. They have no burning desire to be married. They can take it or leave it. Life seems just fine flying solo, as much as it does getting married. Paul's point later in this chapter is that singleness can be an advantage. Single folks aren't distracted by many of the concerns that preoccupy us married folk. I mean, a single Christian can be more singly devoted to the Lord. But you see, either you've got this gift or you don't. Hey, if the sight of a pretty girl causes a man's pulse to race and his hormones to heat up, well, then he can rest assured that God hasn't blessed him with the gift of singleness. He needs a wife. If a lady goes to sleep at night dreaming of her prince charming, sweeping her off her feet and giving her a happy home, then she too doesn't have the gift of singleness. You see, if you're the marrying type, then it's best for you to marry. If you don't, Paul says your desire for intimacy with the opposite sex could lead to sexual sin. Paul says it in verse 3, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, I'm sure there is some sex-crazed husband out there somewhere who has misused this verse to endorse some kinky or some perverted demand. When Paul says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, He's not turning her into her husband's personal sex toy. A wife is not to be used or abused for her husband's sexual gratification. In fact, Ephesians 5 verse 25 explains what a man's motivation should be toward his wife. There we're told, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. You see, God calls husbands to love their wives in an unselfish, in a sacrificial manner, in a way that cleanses her mind and purifies her heart, not in a way that pollutes or damages his wife. Anything that Paul expects of husbands or of wives is certainly in the context of a loving arrangement. And yet love does carry with it certain expectations. And here Paul is very clear. In marriage, both spouses have an obligation to meet each other's sexual needs. Notice the word translated do. It means owed. 
I mean, you owe it to your spouse to have sex lovingly and passionately and frequently. As long as both parties are physically fit, it's not unreasonable to expect sexual interest and sexual expression from your spouse. It is a Christian's duty. Notice verse 5. He says, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Notice, not because you got a headache. Not because there's other things to do. No, it has to be you deprive yourselves for fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Protection from the tempter is to engage in sexual relationships frequently, passionately, lovingly between a husband and his wife. Did you hear about the couple? They were moving from a cramped condo into a spacious new house. They had this little girl, and and she needed more room. She was growing up. And as they toured this prospective house, the daughter, she saw a third bedroom, and she got excited. She turned, and she whispered to her mother. She said, Mom, this is the perfect house. There's enough bedrooms here so that you and Daddy won't have to share. Well, Paul is saying Mom and Dad need to share the same bed on a regular basis. Hey, every married couple needs to realize that sex is a tool to build with, not a weapon to fight with. Hey, withhold sex as a form of punishment, and you're disobeying God. Use sex to reward your husband for a behavior you like or bribe him for something you want. That's manipulation, not love and affirmation. That's a cruel use of what should be an expression of committed love. Pastor Charlie Shedd, he he wrote a series of letters to his daughter before she married. He offers some good advice. He says, Dear Karen, smart girls don't ration their men. Your husband needs sex even when it may be the farthest thing from your mind. Convince him if you can that you love him so much you enjoy sharing your charms with him simply because he's in the mood for more. Wives, your husband goes out into a sex-obsessed world every day. And you need to remember that he has not been blessed with the gift of celibacy. If he had a low libido, he wouldn't have gotten married. He'd be singly serving the Lord. Now, I'm sure that wasn't the only reason that he got married. But trust me, it was one of the chief reasons he got married. He has a need for a holy, healthy sexual outlet. And catch this, ladies. He committed to forego relationships with every other woman in the world to cultivate that relationship with you. A wise wife doesn't ignore that. She doesn't ignore the obvious. She she gives her husband what's due him. Loving, passionate, and frequent sex with his wife is what every man enjoys and what takes the sexual pressure off of that man. The temptations in this world aren't as strong if he knows that he's got all the feminine affection he can handle at home. Verse 6, But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Now, you don't have to get married. It's not a commandment. It's a concession to healthy 
human sexual desires. According to Scripture, nobody has to marry. But if you do, remember, along with the vow comes a wow. You've got to remain faithful to the sexual obligation you have toward your mate. Verse 7, For I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Since Paul was single, that was his preference. But both singleness and marriage, he says, are gifts from God and should be used for God's glory. He says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Now there is some question as to exactly what Paul's marital status was. Was he a widower or a divorcee or had he never been married? Though we're not certain, there are clues. In Philippians 3, Paul says that according to Jewish law, he was blameless. It would have been hard for him to make that statement if he'd never been married. You see, the Jews said that there were seven people God wouldn't accept. And at the top of the list was the man who'd never been married. Second was a man with no children. Of the 613 Jewish laws, number one on their list was the command to repopulate the planet. Now that was according to their traditions, not Scripture. We also, though, know from Acts chapter 7 that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. And to sit on the Jewish Supreme Court, you had to be married and had to have children. It's my opinion that Paul was married with kids at one time. But upon his conversion to Christ, his wife deserted him. Did you know that in some Orthodox Jewish homes today, if a family member becomes a Christian, they hold a religious funeral? The Christian convert is divorced from the community and stripped of his inheritance and considered dead. This is what might have happened to Paul. However he got there, at this point, Paul was single. And yet he knows it's not for everyone. Again, he says in verse 9, But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Once it was a pastor, he preached a sermon entitled, Great Sex for Christians. He began, brothers and sisters, sex is great on all of the days that start with the letter T. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, even today and tomorrow. In other words, sex is a beautiful, it's a God-ordained gift reserved for the marriage bed. Don't ever think that celibacy is more spiritual than sexuality. That's simply not true. If God has given you a normal sex drive, then your goal should be to position yourself for marriage. Graduate. Get a job. Move out from mom. Then get married. Notice the sequence there, the order. <laughs> it's important. And that might take some time. So while you're single, learn to resist temptation and develop self-control and save yourself for your future spouse. And as you do, pray. Pray that God will give you the right person. Be looking for that right person. Marriage is good. It's God's means to relieve sexual pressure. But Paul put, as Paul puts it, it's better to marry than to burn. In verse 10, Paul tackles the subject of divorce. He says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, 
a wife is not to depart from her husband. Now, Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, to me, clarifies God's attitude toward divorce. It stands out in Scripture. There, God says, the Lord God of Israel says that He hates divorce. God can't say it any clearer. And, and everything that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 echoes that statement. God hates divorce. Now, he continues. But even if she does depart... Let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now remember, in Matthew chapter 19 and in verse 8, Jesus acknowledges the reality of divorce. He doesn't approve of it, but, but he acknowledges that it exists. And he credits it to the hardness of men's hearts. Moses laid out stipulations to discourage divorce by making it more difficult. He wanted to minimize the damage it could cause. But divorce was never and is never God's ideal. With God, no marital problem is unsolvable. This is why, according to verse 11, if a spouse departs the marriage, he or she then has two options. They can remain unmarried or they can be reconciled to their estranged spouse. If you divorce your spouse without a biblical justification, then it's sin. Sometimes a cooling off period is required. Sometimes some temporary separation can prove beneficial. But it needs to always lead to a sincere effort toward reconciliation and restoration of that marriage. Now verse 12 he says, but to the rest, I, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Now, now first of all, don't trip up over Paul's phraseology here. Several times in this chapter, Paul is going to sound as if he's downgrading his counsel from divine inspiration to his own human opinion. Note he says, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say. That's not what Paul means. He's not downgrading what he's saying here. Hey, if he wasn't saying, if what he was saying wasn't being inspired by the Holy Spirit, it would have never ended up in the pages of sacred scripture. So you can rest assured that what Paul says here is the will of God. Generally, Paul's writings ran parallel to the teachings of Jesus. But there were subjects that Paul addressed that Jesus never dealt with directly. And here's a good example. For most of Jesus' ministry, there were no believers. I mean, even his own disciples didn't truly believe until after the resurrection. Thus, Jesus had very little opportunity to deal with this subject of a believer married to an unbeliever. That meant that on this issue, Paul couldn't write, thus says the Lord. And yet the Corinthians were facing this challenge. What do we believe? They desperately needed godly wisdom. Thus, through the process of biblical inspiration, God provided the Corinthians the counsel they needed through the pen of Paul. When he says, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say, he's just saying that, that I didn't, I got this through divine inspiration, but I didn't just, you know, transfer this from the teachings of Jesus to you. Now here's Paul's instructions. 
you're a believer in Jesus and you're married to an unbeliever. Your spouse rejects the Lord, but that doesn't mean you have the right to reject your spouse. If he or she wants to stay married, then you stay put. This addresses a common problem in the first century church. You see, the Bible is clear that a believer should never marry an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 6 tells us that this is like hitching two species of animals in the same harness, an unequal yoke. A Christian and a non-Christian have two different natures, two different sets of priorities. That means there's bound to be tension. There's an old Puritan proverb that puts it, if you're a child of God and you marry a child of the devil, you're going to have problems with your father-in-law. And what would be the best way to avoid marrying an unbeliever? <laughs> How about not dating one? That's the best way to avoid it. There's a sign at the beginning of the Alaskan Highway that reads, Choose your rut carefully. You'll be in it for the next 200 miles. And the same can be said for marriage. If you're single, be careful who you marry. Christian marriage is until death do you part, whether you're happy or not. But here's the phenomena that had happened in the first century. Many of the first Christians were married before they ever heard the gospel. Inevitably, Christianity became a wedge driven between couples. One would convert, the other wouldn't. Here Paul is telling the Christians that if their unconverted spouse wants to remain married, they should remain in the relationship. And here's why. He says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Understand what Paul's saying here. Actually, understand what he's not saying. He's not teaching that the unbelieving spouse or the kids will somehow get to heaven on the coattails of the believing spouse. Salvation is never by proxy. No, the words sanctified and holy are from the same Greek word. It's the word hagios. It means to set apart. The word speaks of position and opportunity. Paul is saying that when a believer remains married to an unbeliever, the light of God continues to shine into the dark life of that unbeliever and into the lives of the kids. Christian witness and wisdom remains a constant influence in that family. The believer's involvement ensures a degree of spiritual safety for the family. And it enhances the likelihood that one day the spouse and the children will ultimately be saved. You know, if you're a believer married to an unbeliever, it can get tough. We recognize that. I like to compare it to a three-legged race. Imagine a middle-aged man tied to a short, chubby, nine-year-old boy. It's amusing to watch such a mismatched couple, you know, limping along, awkwardly stumbling along in a three-legged race. Hey, but this is what every day looks like to a person, to a believer married to an unbeliever, permanently attached to someone of uneven stature, of unequal stamina, and often the believer carries an inordinate share of the load. Hey, such a life isn't easy. 
But if it means the eternal salvation of your spouse and your kids, then it must be worth it. If this is your life, God loves you, and God wants to give you strength. Notice verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? You see, a believer in Jesus should not depart as long as the unbeliever wants to stay married. But if the unbeliever does choose to depart then the believer is no longer under bondage. He or she is free to move on with their lives. There are two scenarios where God permits divorce and remarriage. The first is outlined in Matthew 19, verse 8. There Jesus says, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, there's the exception, and marries another, commits adultery. The exception, sexual immorality, the word is pornea in the Greek. It's the word from which we get our word pornography. It includes all manner of illicit sexual activity, homosexuality, adultery, pornography. In other words, if a person falls into persistent sexual misconduct, their spouse then is free to divorce that person and remarry another and can do so with God's blessing. Now, it's not commanded. They can choose to forgive and to work on the marriage and to restore the marriage, but it is an option that God makes available to the offended spouse. You see, in the Old Testament, an adulterer was taken out and stoned to death. That made the victim a widow and thus free to remarry. In the New Testament, God shows mercy on the adulterer. He's not taken out in stone, but he still affords the betrayed victim the same freedom to move on and start over if that's what they choose to do. Now, the second biblical justification for divorce and remarriage is right here in our text. It's desertion. Here Paul says, if the unbeliever departs or deserts the relationship, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. If you're deserted by a spouse because of your faith in Jesus and your righteous conduct, then you have the prerogative to move on with your life and remarry in the will of God. The Greek word translated depart literally means to put room between. A husband who ignores his wife and watches too much football on the weekends is guilty of insensitivity, not desertion. A wife who spends too much money and time at the mall may be disrespectful, but she hasn't departed the marriage. Yet are there more grievous betrayals that do count as desertion? I believe there are. A husband who repeatedly beats his wife and his kids. Has he deserted the marriage? Perhaps he has. A wife strung out on heroin who refuses to get help. 
You see, these people might come home at night and like sleeping under the same roof as the rest of their family, but does that mean they're still committed to the marriage? Not hardly. After 31 years as a pastor, I've concluded that there are a lot of ways to depart a marriage without actually vacating the premises and filing divorce papers. Certainly, these questions are problematic, and I would never want to give a person in a difficult marriage a loophole to disobey God and opt for an easy way out. If the unbeliever wants to remain, then the believer should remain. You can't divorce your spouse just because they're a jerk. But is desertion limited to an unbeliever packing his or her bags and getting a change of address? Well, that's the question you've got to decide. We all need to think through these issues and be led by the Holy Spirit and be convinced in our own minds and hearts. One truth is certain. God hates divorce. We need to take our marriages seriously. Verse 17 tells us, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all of the churches. Again, Paul has just addressed the subject of marriage. If you were married to Sam, the unbeliever, when you were saved, then stay married to Sam. Who knows if you won't lead Sam to the Lord. Here's the principle. Stay where you're called. But now, Paul is going to broaden this same basic principle beyond marriage to to social status and to the observance of various customs and traditions and culture. He goes on, he says, Was anyone called while circumcised? Circumcision was the mark of a Jew. Paul is saying, If you're born a Jew, notice what he says, let him not be uncircumcised. Notice, don't think it's going to be easier being a Christian by adopting Gentile customs. Now, if you were born a Jew, if you started out as as a Jew, a converted Jew, then remain a converted Jew. He says, was anyone called while uncircumcised? In other words, if you're a Gentile, let him not be circumcised. If you're a Gentile, don't think it's going to be easier if you convert over to Judaism and try living as a Jew. He says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Neither Gentile Christians or Jewish Christians have an advantage over the other. Both have their own challenges. Ultimately, culture matters, matters little. It matters zero, uh, has zero bearing with God. You see, Paul is saying that if you're a Jew, be a believing Jew. If you're a Gentile, be a believing Gentile. Changing your circumstances isn't going to make your life of faith any easier. We think it will sometimes, but in reality, it won't. We need to start living for Jesus wherever we've been called. The key to living the Christian life is to bloom where you're planted. I hear folks say all the time, Well, when I find a wife, I'll settle down and live my life for Jesus. When I get that new job, I'll start being honest and ethical. Uh, We're living together now, but when we get married, man, we're going to start doing things God's way. No, no, a thousand times no. 
Here's what Paul is saying to us. If you're serious about following Jesus, start doing things God's way now, right where you're at, right where He has you. If it takes moving out or moving in with a friend, if it takes informing your boss that there's certain stuff you're no longer going to do, then so be it. But note verse 20. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Once we had a guy... He became a Christian. He was a distribution manager for Budweiser. And he drove a company van. He liked to drive this van. And he would come to our men's prayer meetings on Saturday morning, and he would park way down the street. He never wanted to park his Budweiser truck right in front of the church. One day he confessed to me his occupation, and I could see the look on his face. He was afraid that once he confessed, we'd no longer accept him as a brother in Christ. I told him that Saturday morning, I said, Scott, God says start where you've been called. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to help you be the best beer truck driver you can possibly be for Jesus Christ. (laughs) I realized that would eventually present some problems, and it did. He ended up having to resign his job and get another. But Scott started where he was called. And this is what all Christians are expected to do. Notice verse 21. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. Now here Paul mentions slavery. The Roman Empire was built on the back of slave labor. No other culture had as many slaves as Rome. In fact, many of the early Christians came from the ranks of the slaves. And yet Paul and the early Christians seldom attacked the evil of slavery head on. Remember, Christianity changes institutions by changing individuals. Here Paul doesn't discourage a slave from using his newfound faith to gain his freedom. Perhaps his master has an affinity for Christians. If he can work this for his freedom's sake, then go for it. But Paul tells him that even if his freedom from sin doesn't translate into freedom from slavery, don't let it stop him from living his life for Jesus' sake. Here's the point. Begin your walk with the Lord wherever you're called. True happiness really has nothing to do with our circumstances anyway. Paul had met happy slaves and he had met sad owners. Paul knows that happiness is the byproduct of a right relationship with God, not comfortable and cozy circumstances. Verse 22 is such a liberating verse. He says, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. If you belong to Jesus, you're free spiritually, whether you're a slave or not. Your status in Christ has nothing to do with your surroundings. That's how Paul wants us to live. Then he says, brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Again, often we experience resistance in our lives. Sometimes where God has us, It gets awkward. The road gets tough. And we like to bolt. We want to escape our circumstances. Paul is telling us to remain in the prickly place God has you. God has you there for a reason. Don't leave until God issues your release. Remain where you've been called. Verse 25. 
now concerning virgins. Now, in ancient times, almost everybody got married. Single was not really a recognized status. So if Paul were writing today, he would probably start this chapter, now concerning singles. And once again, he writes, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. As we said earlier, Paul isn't abdicating the authority of inspiration. He's simply indicating that he's about to tackle the subject that Jesus didn't directly address. He says, I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, in the rest of the chapter, Paul is going to extol the virtues of singleness. We hear all the talk about marriage. But there are some advantages to being single. If you're single, these verses are going to provide you much hope and great help. If you're married, don't think you made a mistake. Paul knows his Bible. He sees the value of marriage. But based on current events, notice he says, the present distress. He's going to explain why marriage might not be such a good idea. This is what he says in verse 28. He says, but even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Now, several factors complicated life for the early church. First, there was often a vicious persecution. The early Christians lived under the constant threat of bodily harm. Under such conditions, marriage could be an awful liability. I mean, think about it. A day at the office for Paul was preaching to hostile crowds, stirring up a riot or two, taking a beating, Spending the night in prison or maybe shipwrecked in the deep blue sea? I mean, ladies, what if you were married to the Apostle Paul? It wouldn't be an easy life, would it? I mean, honey, would you please stop tracking your blood in on the carpets? Paul, please, would you talk to your angel about breaking you out of jail so you can get home by dinner time? It'd be tough being married to Paul. Voice of the Martyrs founder, Richard Warmbrand, he tells of a fellow pastor persecuted by the communists. They tried to torture him by, uh, they tried to torture him and, and, and force him to deny his faith in Christ, but he stood firm. That is, until they brought in his 14 year old son and they began beating him unmercifully. It was all the poor pastor could handle. He eventually broke down and verbally renounced his faith. It's been said, a man who is a hero himself is a coward when he thinks of his wife and children. I mean, a married man is vulnerable in a way he wouldn't be if he was single. Paul's advice to the married is to live, you know, without this liability. If you're single, don't get married unless you can accept the greater risk. I mean, Paul is saying because of the present distress, singleness might just be a better option. Then verse 29, 
But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as those they had none, and those who weep as those they did not weep, those who rejoice as those they did not rejoice, those who buy as those they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. Notice Paul prefaces, prefaces these comments by saying time is short. Paul and the Thessalonians were living as if Jesus were coming at any moment. And that's why they had streamlined their lives to only care for Christ. And he encourages the married people to live the same way. Of course, Paul isn't suggesting that a married person abandon their family and their marital responsibilities. I've known people who use their commitment to Christ as an excuse for neglecting their families. That's not what Paul is advocating. Don't stop loving your family, but neither should you turn them into an idol. He's saying these singles who live singly for the Lord, us married people can learn from them. Some Christian families get so busy providing for each other that they never make a sacrifice for anyone else. Hey, the point of marriage is to be able to serve the Lord together. You know, some Christian couples focus too much on the family. The goal of every Christian family needs to be the glory of God. And then he says in verse 32, But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Again, understand, a single person is free from distress, but he or she is also free from distraction. I mean, when you get married suddenly, wow, your plate gets, gets more full. I mean, there are two sets of worries now when you get married. There's two sets of expenses. There's two sets of demands, two sets of interests, two sets of perspectives. If I weren't married, I wouldn't have to maintain two cars. Just one. If I wasn't married, I wouldn't have to hang Christmas lights or purchase lipstick. I, I, I could cut my makeup budget to zero or call home when I'm running late if I wasn't married. I could spend all my time out witnessing to people and serving the Lord. But now that I'm married, God commands me to go home and minister to my wife. Michael Meany writes, I didn't know what happiness was until I got married, but then it was too late. Hey, I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for my wife. I'm thankful for my kids. They add to my life in incredible ways. My wife and kids are blessings from God. But Paul is saying, if you're single, why not avoid the extra baggage? I mean, life gets a lot simpler when you're single. Verse 34, but there is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married carries about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Notice this, the wife's big concern is pleasing her husband. She runs around all the time thinking about ways that she can please her husband. Oh, that's how it's supposed to work, I suppose. That's the idea, in other words. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. 
<laughs> but boy, Paul's got a way with words here. Not that I may put a leash on you. In Ephesians 5, Paul paints this beautiful picture of marriage. It's a love story. It's a romance. You know, it's between Christ. Christ is like a groom. The church is like a bride. Paul paints this beautiful love story. But Paul isn't always that romantic. If you're single, beware. Because here his picture isn't quite as flattering. Marriage, he says, is a leash. It's a dog collar that curtails your freedom. That's a little harsh, but it's true in many ways. Marriage severely limits your autonomy. He says, but if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them remarry. Again, marriage is not a sin, it's good. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, he does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Now it's unclear here whether he's actually addressed, this is addressed to fathers who, who are giving away their daughters in marriage, or if this is men who've been pledged to a bride, but, but then are, are thinking twice about actually following through and getting married. Uh, it could be either one. But either way, Paul's purpose is clear. If you have the self-control to live the solo life and serve the Lord without distraction, then it has its advantages. I asked Mac the other day why he didn't have a girlfriend. He said, Dad. He says, I have a hard enough time pulling down the good grades, you know, without a girlfriend. Can you imagine how hard it would be if I had a girlfriend? Well, that's Paul's thinking right there. Why, why accept the distraction? You know, why add and complicate your life? I mean, you've got in the present distress, you're going to school, you're trying to make good grades. It's best to streamline your priorities, get the job done. That's what Paul's saying to us. Did you hear about the wedding at the bride's house? It started at 645. But the host forgot one important detail. Just as the pastor asked, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? The little bird slid from the mouth of the overhead clock and started shouting, cuckoo, cuckoo, seven hilarious cuckoos. Well, that sums up the chapter here, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's take on marriage right there. Why be a cuckoo and forego your freedom? Serve God without distraction. Be single for the Savior. If you're single, hey, don't try to get married. If you're married... Don't try to get single, but live as if you are single and focus solely on the Lord. He concludes, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. And notice that, Christians marry only in the Lord. That means to another Christian. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. Here's the key. God calls some of us to be single. He calls others of us to be married. Our job is to bloom where we're planted. Whatever your status, do all that you do 
to the glory of God. And there we have 1 Corinthians chapter 7.